Good morning, LCC Church family. Greetings in the name of Jesus. To all of you who are meeting in small groups this morning or at home, we just want to welcome you to this this morning. I will say this is a, this is a first for probably uh, my years in ministry. I sit here in an empty auditorium here at Life Community Church to give the message this morning. As you know, following recommendations from our government leaders, we decided not to meet in a large group for the rest of this month, and we'll see beyond that. Uh, but the church goes on, and we are set up well during this time to, to, uh, to take care of one another and to meet in a smaller groups. That's what we're about. And the Word of God goes on, too. He's our foundation. We've got to remind each other of that. You know, yesterday I checked in with some neighbors who are older and more vulnerable in a more vulnerable category with the virus, and one of them mentioned to me just how quickly life can turn, and she's absolutely right. There is no stable foundation other than Christ. That's why we look to him. That's why we look to his word this morning. So we're going to jump in together in that. All right. In the early 2000s, a company set out with a vision to create the ultimate retirement home experience. Are you ready for it? Dubbed by local officials as a cruise ship on land, this 80-acre development would be a self-contained community and include 1,500 residential units, a hair salon, a cafeteria, a gym, and even medical services. The company projected 800 to 1,000 employees, and the groundbreaking ceremony for this cruise ship on land was held in April 2008, and the project was off to an incredible start. 230 people immediately paid their deposits. Over the next year, the two-club story house went up and was nearly complete. Then, without warning, the cruise ship on land hit an iceberg. Construction stopped just six weeks before the first 90 residents were set to move in. And the company soon filed for bankruptcy protection, and the property sat vacant for years. And yes, some of you know this story because today on that property sits the Hilliard Public Library, right? The cruise ship of all libraries, and a portion of the land was bought by the city. And it's crazy. How could something that started with such a promising beginning end up like that? You know, you can start with everything in your favor, only to fail in finishing well. That's true of people, too. You can start strong and fail to finish. On the flip side, you can also start with nothing and finish very well. That's kind of the American dream, right? Andy Reid, coach of the Kansas City Chiefs, he had a whole track record of, of setbacks and losses before he finally achieved the great prize last month, a Super Bowl ring. Some would say he finished well. To the Lord, how we finish is more important than how we start. Let me say that again. How we finish is more important than how we start. Today, we, we continue our story through the books of First and Second Samuel in the Bible. And in that, we're, we're going to reach the conclusion today of the life of King Saul, a king who had about as promising a start as you can have. And throughout this series, and as the author intended, we've contrasted the life of, of Saul with the life of the king after him, David. And, and David was one who started very small and, and went through a series of hardships and setbacks before he got to the throne. 
And Dan Ellis talked about this a couple weeks ago about character transformation and the difference between getting everything at the start, right, like Saul did, or like David, someone who had a slow, difficult path. And his heart, David's heart, was transformed. His life was transformed through that. That path is biblical. It's biblical for, for us, and it's the path that God wants us to take, to endure through hardship and to finish well. We're being tested even in that now. Now, before we begin in 1 Samuel chapter 31, we're going to recap where we are by means of a map, right? Maps are fun, right? You'll see inside the dotted lines here is the kingdom of Israel at that time. And we're going to zoom in to the southern portion of the kingdom. Now, last time I spoke, David was fleeing King Saul who wanted to, to kill him, right? So we're going to take a look at David's crazy path with Saul pursuing him. So if you look to the north, you'll see uh, Saul's house was at Gibeah to the north. David flees from there to go to the priests at Nob. And Saul soon finds out about that, and he kills the priests there because they helped David. Then David flees to the land of the enemy, to the Philistines, to the city of Gath. There David goes to the king of Gath, Achish, and pretends to be mad, pretends to be crazy. And, and he quickly has to escape from there, and from there he travels on to Moab. And from, Saul chases him to Moab and, and continues to pursue him from Moab to Agilom, where David hides in a cave and has the chance to kill Saul, but he doesn't. Then he chases him on to Mizpah. And in Kilah, David seeks the Lord and finds out that he is supposed to battle the Philistines there. And Saul even chases him there and then on to Ziph, on to En Gedi, on to Maon, and on to Carmel. And after that time, David's tired and finally decides it's safer for him to be back in the land of the Philistines. And so he heads back to Gath where he talks actually wins over the king of Gath, Achish, and convinces Achish to allow him a city for he and his people. And so that city is Ziklag, and David now has over 600 men and their families there in Ziklag. And, and finally, there's some stability because David's in Ziklag about 16 months, but David still has to deal with, to the south, the Amalekites. Yes, this is the same Amalekites that Saul was commanded by God to completely wipe out. But David has to deal with this. David has to deal with the consequences of Saul's disobedience to what God had commanded. Stay with me. Meanwhile, the Philistines are growing in strength. They're attacking Israel. And Achish, the king right in Gath, actually recruits David to go into battle on the Philistine side against his own people, the people of Israel. But about, as that's about to happen, it's just about to happen, and the Philistine commanders say, what, are you crazy? You can't let David back into battle. He used to be with Saul. He'll turn on us. So they prevent David from going. And David, so David focuses his attention on the south to the Amalekites. Now, while all this is happening, this is crazy, while all this is happening, on the map you'll see up to the north the city of Endor. And in that city, Saul reaches out to a medium, a witch, because he's afraid. He's afraid of, of the growing threat of the Philistines. 
Tom talked about this last week. And in consulting the witch, you can read the story on your own if you want, but in consulting the witch, uh, Saul learns that he, his sons, and the nation of Israel is gonna be defeated in battle the next day by the Philistines. And what was gonna happen would come true. God promised it a long time ago. The kingdom would be taken from Saul. That brings us to 1 Samuel 31. And here's a map. You'll see the area. And we're gonna be in the area of Mount Gilboa. This is where the battle takes place, just south of Endor where Saul consulted the medium. So let's read together. This is 1 Samuel 31, okay? This is what we read. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through or these uncircumcised Philistines will come and run me through and abuse me. So even as Saul's life's about to end here, he's focused on himself, on what's gonna happen to him, how it's gonna look, more than his people, more than his relationship with God. Let's keep going. But his armor bearer was terrified. He would not do it. He would not take Saul's life. So Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. This is how the life of Israel's first king ended. This king that the people had cried out for. Where David, the next king, would be a man after God's own heart. King Saul was a man always chasing after the Israelites' heart, always trying to please people. Saul was so full of promise at the beginning. He had so many natural qualities that could have contributed to a successful and a God-centered reign. Physically, 1 Samuel 9 tells us he was taller, he was handsome, he had the favor of the people. Above all of that, he had the Holy Spirit powerfully come upon him on his anointing. Unfortunately, Saul did not become the source of blessing that God intended for him to be. Instead, he became a curse to Israel, to, to the nations, to himself, and to his family, his three sons, most notably Jonathan, died as a result of his actions. And it just seems unfair that Jonathan had to bear the consequences. But the fallout of Saul's actions would impact Israel for years to come. And 1 Chronicles 10, 13, and 14 speaks a little bit more about the legacy of Saul. It says that Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance, and he did not inquire of the Lord. We're gonna talk about that a little bit later. He did not seek, he did not inquire of the Lord, so the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. Saul's failure was in his failing to acknowledge that God is the true king of Israel and that he was God's servant. We learn from Saul's life that that, that Following God means trusting. It means obeying what God says. 
Saul had his opportunities to turn to God, even after he disobeyed. He had the chance to finish strong, but his desire for power and to keep the throne and to please the people blinded him. And this is a major point for us today. Finishing strong is taking the daily path of surrendering to God's will, the daily path, surrendering to God's will until the end, until the end, it's pressing on. What keeps us from doing that? What keeps us from pressing on? Well, just like Saul, we can take our eyes off of Jesus and look to other kings in our lives, become blinded by our own desires. The other thing that happens, I think for many of us, is we disqualify ourselves from pressing on, from finishing strong, because we look to the past in our lives. Well, God could never forgive me for that. Man, I screwed up. How can I even, how can I get beyond that? But God's heart is always for us to look ahead, always for us to press forward, not to look behind, and to finish strong, to endure. Paul knew this, the Apostle Paul. He wrote about this in Philippians 3. He said, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget what is in the behind, in the rearview mirror, and I strain towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, with God, it's not about the past. Oh, we can learn from the past who we are, where we came from, from our family, and even the battles we may face in the future because of that. We can also look back to the past to to right the wrongs from the past, to fix relationships, to restore. But all of that is in the context of looking ahead and finishing strong to the end. With God, it's always ahead. And so there's just a real question for us. Where are you looking right now? How are you finishing? Do you have your eyes set on the end? There's been many times throughout my life where I've taken my eyes off Jesus and I've become consumed with money, consumed with worry, consumed with, with grief and loss in my life, and it's kept me from moving forward. How often do you look forward to the end? You know, I was in Honduras a couple weeks ago with the Sours, and Alan builds a lot of churches there. He builds the physical church buildings for, for bodies of believers there. And there was a time when Alan would go in and start a church but he soon found out that the church, churches were just not getting finished that way. They, they were only started and maybe built upon a little bit. So he started this new strategy. He, he would offer the, the group of believers to finish the project, to actually finish the roof. And with the end in mind, the churches finished their part. They were looking ahead to the end being completed. Now we, in the same way, We are to look ahead to the final completion of things, to the end of the story, and build now in anticipation of the end. Guys, let's be people who finish strong. As Paul said, again, he said, listen, I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive. I may finish it. He did this. Even at the end, Paul looked back on his life and he said this as he was about to leave. He said this, 
I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now I've got great things in store for me, rewards from God because of it. Paul's eyes were on the end. He was always looking ahead to finish strong. Let's be people who do that. Don't look back at your failures. Don't be stuck. Move forward and finish strong. Okay, we got to move on. We get to verse 7 of chapter 31. Saul's died, okay, and this is what we read. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and they fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. They abandoned their towns and fled. You know, things have come full circle here for the people of Israel. They wanted a king to look to. They cried out. They demanded it from God. God gave it to them, even though God really wanted them just to look to him to be their king and to follow him. But they, he gave them their king. And once they got their king, the people continued to look to Saul as their king of hope, as their strength. Even though he was unfaithful to God, they continued to believe that he would protect them, that they would be safe with him. They trusted in him. But the moment that that king was no longer present, the moment that Saul died, the people were undone. They abandoned hope. They abandoned the life that they knew. Everything unraveled, and they went into confusion. There is no foundation in a king other than our God. There's no foundation. Jesus said to us, follow my words, build your house on me, the solid foundation. And when the storms come, you will be strong. Your house will stand. And this is a major point for us as we look to other kings in our lives because when those kings fail, foundations crumble and life unravels. The kings in our lives can be anything we look to or trust in, from money to our jobs to our relationships to our health. But with Jesus as our king, as the foundation, with our eyes fixed on him, we are building on him the strong foundation. And anything that comes in our lives, whether loss or famine or some virus that comes in, our foundation's sound. We can have peace. We can have soul rest in him. I want to say on a side note, please do not build your foundation on a person on a leader, a Christian leader, on me, on Tom, on our staff, on our leadership team, on somebody you really admire. Don't build it on a financial manager or a political leader. If you do, you will eventually find out with the same thing that the, the, the Israelites found out. The foundation is weak and your life will unravel at some point. Many people have been gone to dark places because people have let them down that they put their full trust in. You were not created to trust in anything other than the God who made you. He is the strong foundation. Who are you looking to right now, even in what we're going through? Where's your foundation? Ask yourself the question, what would I lose right now that would cause my life to unravel? What am I investing in? Let's keep moving on. Verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, 
they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put Saul's armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, their gods, their false gods, and they fastened Saul's body to the wall of Beth Shan. In essence, they desecrated Saul, the Lord's anointed, by taking him to the place of their gods. Verse 11, when the people of Jabesh-Gilead, Israelites, heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Beth Shan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Beth Shan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted for seven days. And you can see a map of where this all took place. You see Mount Gilboa, you see Beth Shan, where Saul's body was taken, and the people of Jabesh-Gilead. Now, the people of Jabesh-Gilead had special affection for Saul. He had rescued them right after he had become king. It was really one of his more noble acts. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 11. But the men of Jabesh-Gilead went, they rescued Saul's corpse from further humiliation. They burned it probably because the Philistines had abused it, and they just grieved and fasted for Saul and his death. David, later in chapter 2, would thank those people for the kindness they showed to Saul's body in burying him. And David offered friendship to them and built a bridge to them. He would be their next king. Now we get to 2 Samuel verse 1, and you got to realize at this point, David does not know that Saul is dead, okay? He does not know, and this is what we read. It says, after the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites. Remember, he was battling them in the south, and he stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. Well, what happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle, he replied. Many of them fell dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Verse 5, then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his sons Jonathan are dead? Well, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, well, what can I do? And he asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then Saul said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm, and I've brought them here to my Lord. Now, it's really ironic if you think about it, because David learned of Saul's death from an Amalekite. Saul was supposed to have killed all the Amalekites and destroyed them, but he did not. And here we have Saul David learning about Saul's death from an Amalekite. Irony. So we've got a different story here presented in chapter 2 as to how Saul died. What's happening? Most scholars point to that 
that first account in, in chapter one as the true account, if that, that account is also recorded in 1 Chronicles 10. If that's the case, which I think it is, it's most likely that this young Amalekite bringing the news of Saul's death may have been a soldier, a mercenary who joined Saul's army. Um, he was able to get Saul's crown and, and his bracelet, and he probably returned to David with his story to try and have an in with the next king, possibly. And he maybe even thought David would have been glad to hear of Saul's death since Saul had been chasing him and David was a rival to the throne. But David did not celebrate Saul's death. He did the opposite. We read about it in verse 11. It says, Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They grieved. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Can you imagine? These were these were, were people that David and his men knew. They were a part of the nation of Israel. They grieved for their home, for the fall of their nation. Verse 13, David said to the young man who brought in the report, where are you from? I'm the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy Saul, the Lord's anointed? In other words, why did you think you had the right to finish off Saul? I'm not sure here if David is actually buying this guy's story or not. Remember, David had previously had at least, at least two opportunities to kill Saul, but he, had done, he hadn't done it because, he, because Saul was the Lord's anointed and he respected Saul. Well, David, verse 15, called one of his men and said, go strike him down. So he struck down that Amalekite and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. We can talk a lot more about that, but let's, we're going to move on because we've got an important thing that's about to happen with David. And it's an important thing for us to learn in our lives in verse 17. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son, Jonathan. And he ordered that the people of Judah, remember, at least 600 men and their families, all of them, be taught this lament of the bow. It's written in the book of Jasher. He taught all his people to recite this lament. And I'm going to read it to you and just listen to it and follow along. This is the lament of David for Saul and his son, Jonathan. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, that's the Philistine city. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, that's where the battle happened where Saul died. May you neither have dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan in life, they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments 
with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother, for you were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. David taught that lament to all the people so that it could be read again and again. And David considered Saul to be the Lord's anointed. He considered Jonathan's love better than that of women. You know, David and Jonathan enjoyed a oneness that most married couples don't have because of their deep and strong commitment to God and to each other. They were brothers together in the Lord. This lament is so important for us to see because it's modeled here and elsewhere. David teaches us about the the process of grief. This, This process is not to pretend that the loss did not happen, not to stuff it inside, but it is to enter into grief, to work through it, not around it. And David recounts this tragedy and has his men and the whole nation that he was over at that time, the 600 men and their families, repeat, learn it so that it can be repeated and they could repeatedly enter into it. And this is a major point for us as followers. Walking through loss and grieving are a gateway to an enlarged soul and a deeper relationship with Jesus. Let me read that again. Walking through loss and grieving are a gateway to an enlarged soul and a deeper relationship with Jesus. Pete Scazzaro, who's an author and a pastor, wrote in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, that our culture routinely interprets losses as alien invasions that interrupt our normal lives. We numb our pain through denial, through blaming, through rationalizations, through addictions, through avoidance. We search for spiritual shortcuts around our wounds. We demand that others take away our pain. Yet we all face many deaths within our lives. The choice is whether these deaths will be terminal, will crush our spirit and our life, or open us up to new possibilities of depths of transformation in Christ. Scazzaro goes on to say and challenges us to live out the examples we see in the Bible and allow grief and loss to enlarge our souls and our relationship with Jesus. David entered into grief. All over the Psalms we see it. Job entered into grief. Jesus grieved for Lazarus. He grieved for Jerusalem. Paul, many others, entered into their losses. How do you handle grief in your life? I will tell you this has been convicting for me because I do not do this well. And I've been challenged in in reading this to to even go back and re-enter the places where I've not grieved, the losses that I've had in my life. I think we need to do that regularly. It's a part of moving forward in him. Well, we get to 2 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to just read one verse. Um, We've got a lot more to cover, but we're going to let you read that on your own. Uh, But this is an important point as well. This is what we read in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 2. In the course of time, so time goes by. In the course of time, David inquired 
of the Lord. He said, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked the Lord. And the Lord Lord said, go up. And David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. And we're gonna finish with this major, major point today. Followers of Jesus seek the Lord. They inquire of the Lord. They seek his will. And here we contrast Saul, right, who we we saw in the first Chronicles passage earlier. He did not inquire of the Lord. He looked to his own self. He often looked to mediums or or people outside of, uh, of the Lord. He did not inquire of the Lord. David, on the other hand, the next king, patiently and purposefully sought God's will and his outcome. And David seems to have this special place, right, for those he respected in leadership, for the Lord's anointed. He really wanted his reign to come about in God's time and in God's way. He despised shortcuts, which disrespected and dishonored those who led God's people, even though they were against him at times. They were his enemies. David moved forward one day at a time, seeking God's will. You see it. I want to show you very quickly all over. You see it in, in First and Second Samuel. First Samuel 23, 2. It says, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up and attack the Philistines? Uh, verse 4, David inquired of the Lord again. Verse 11, he's having this conversation with God. God, will the men of Kailah surrender to me? God, will, will, will Saul, what's Saul going to do? Will he come down? The Lord answers him. We, we go on. Chapter 30 of 1 Samuel, David inquires of the Lord, shall I, shall I go after this party? Will I overtake them? He, uh, 2 Samuel 2, verse 1, David inquires, shall I go up to the towns of Judah? 2 Samuel chapter 5, so David inquired of the Lord. I think you see the pattern here. David sought the Lord again and again in his life. And this is a major point for us. Followers of Jesus seek the Lord and his will daily. We see it in Psalm 34, 8 through 10. Remember, we memorized this verse together. In fact, if you're in a group right now or at home, I want you to say it with me as I read it. Oh, ready? Here we go. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who seek the Lord, those who inquire of the Lord. Let's be people who do that daily, even as we're going through what we're going through now, especially. Well, the fallout of Saul's life will haunt Israel for many years. Chapters two through five tell the story of one last gasp of the house of Saul to hold on to the throne through one of his sons who's still alive. You can read that on your own. But I've just got just really very quickly four questions to discuss in your groups this week. Maybe even if you're there now, uh, right now together. Four questions as we talk about the major themes in this passage. The first one is this. In your journey with Christ, are you finishing strong? Are you moving forward or are you looking back? Are you stuck? The second question has to do with our foundations. Where is your foundation? Are you looking to anything else as a foundation to your life other than God? Is there anything that if if you lost it would cause your foundation to crumble? 
So good questions to ask. A third question has to do with grief. What is your process? How do you process loss and grief in your life? What does it look like for you to enter into those losses like David and like so many others did we read about in the Word of God? And finally, a fourth question. David consistently inquired of the Lord, does that way of living with God seem natural to you in your life right now and your relationship with God, or does it seem foreign to you? Great things to talk about this week in group. I'm going to pray and pray for all that we're going through and all that we've talked about here today. Let's pray. God, you are our rock. You are our foundation We can have so much hope today because of who you are and what you've promised and how it's come true in the past and even looking to the end, to the end of the story and how this will end. God, we want to pray for your peace uh, to go out today to all of us as we uh, go through difficult times here in our country. God, we pray that you would give us the courage to look to you, the faith that is strong in you. Um, We pray even... In, in our groups and throughout our church that we would minister to each other and love one another like we never have before as we go through this time together. Uh, and God, you are sovereign. You are in control. You have great things to, to do in our lives and to do in our nation and in our community and in and through us during this time. And we trust you through it. We trust you because you are faithful. And we pray all these things in the name of our foundation, Jesus Christ, amen.